Locked away in attics, basements, and dark corners across the world are stories of beings and beasts that hide in the night. These are those stories. This is the Sleepless in Suburbia podcast. I'm Brooke, case manager for our team, and this is the audio recap for case 115, Wyndham's West Bank Hideaway. I just grabbed my DoorDash Chipotle from the porch when a text alert pinged from the sofa where a season one episode of Ghost Hunters set paused. Grabbing my phone, I headed to the kitchen, chucking the metal burrito bowl lid in recycling, fumbling to key in my phone passcode since, per usual, my face recognition didn't work. Text screen finally opened. I stared at a text from Prue, convinced my mind was mentally autocorrecting Allen or Alabama or alligator to the word alien. One hand texting, I stepped forward, tripping over Lainey the Yorkie Poo, spilling a freshly delivered veggie burrito bowl with extra guacamole to the floor. Prue. Yup, alien. Check the inbox. This case is a must-go. Scooping the sad remains of my once-perfect burrito bowl into the trash, I flopped on the sofa, hitting play on Ghost Hunters. Inbox open. I clicked the starred email with subject line, Alien Invasion. Here's the email. My name's Walt Wyndham. My wife Sarah and I own Wyndham's West Bank Hideaway here in Madison. Our small vacation cabin community is everything someone wanting to escape the city would want. Private beach on the west bank of Canary Lake, cabins with private walks nestled in individual clearings in the forest, electronics lockers so you can fully unplug for your stay without the temptation of checking your face gram. It's perfect, except for the rash of alien sightings at almost every one of our seven cabins. It started about two months ago. Guests watched an alien walk under the gas lamps lighting the path to the water. Then, a week or so later, the aliens started knocking on guest cabins. Some say the aliens even communicate with them in English. Word starting to get out about the reoccurring alien encounters. Our sleepy little hideaway is almost empty of actual guests and crawling with wackadoos wanting to investigate by trespassing in the middle of the night. Not that we think your investigation is wackadoo. We really need you to come here and get this sorted out before our years of hard work goes up in smoke. Sincerely, Walt. Aliens speaking English strolling around a cabin community like it's extraterrestrial club med? Here's what we know about the property. The Wyndhams bought the property in 1981. There are seven guest cabins, each sitting at the end of a long riverstone walkway set back in the woods. At your cabin, you're completely secluded. You can't see your cabin neighbors. You can choose to hide away from the rest of the world here. Walt and Sarah's house has a similar secluded stone walkway and set up to the other cabins. The lodge is the central hub, set up in the middle of the property. Here, guests check in and out, borrow books or board games from the hideaway library, purchase snacks and alcohol, or hang out with other guests outside the lodge at the fire pit area. There are a handful of storage sheds along the dirt path leading to the lake, which hold kayaks and other water recreation supplies. Team update. We got a late start hitting the road to Madison. Claire had a third interview for a dream numbers job, which of course ran late, like two hours late, because she landed the gig. Congrats, Claire. May all your spreadsheets balance and your tin key batteries never die. As we finally got into town, the Madison Public Records building was a no-go. A type sign on the door read, closed due to flooding until further notice. Cell service was spotty at best in this rule of an area, forcing Prue to opt for post-investigation research. 
On-site interview recap. Turning off County Road L, a long gravel road curved through dense trees that canopied overhead, making a tree tunnel, before opening up into a large clearing with the lodge in the center and paths jutting off from the center like sunbeams from the sun. It was a beautiful day. Warm air, cool breeze, birds chirping. How could anything creepy happen at such a picturesque location? We joined the Wyndhams at a picnic table for iced tea and animal cookies with little tubs of icing. My hand to the snack gods, they were a big cake version of Dunkaroos, like the ones my mom used to pack in my elementary school lunches. Sarah asked about our trip, if the storm that morning had slowed our travels, and likely would have continued the small talk pleasantries, if not for Walt, who sat at the end of the table, leg shaking, before finally blurting out, Oh, for Pete's sake, Sarah, they're here to chase away the aliens. Chit-chat done, cookies and dunking icing abandoned on the table for the darn flies to enjoy, we were off to the Wyndham's house. The invasion began on a warm spring evening. Sarah finished cleaning up supper and was sitting down in her rocker on the screened-in porch to work on a Sudoku puzzle. Voices came from the darkness just before beams of light from flashlights became visible up the path. She was surprised to see Mr. and Mrs. H, we will leave their names out for their privacy, jogging towards her. While out for a romantic moonlit stroll, the couple noticed two shadows moving along the pathway leading towards the lake. The shadows stepped away from the edge of the pathway under the glowing gaslights. The shadows were children, neither older than 12. The children stopped walking, looking at Mr. and Mrs. H motionless. But the shadows caused from the gaslights made it hard to see the children's faces, especially their eyes shrouded in complete darkness. Mrs. H noted that they were unnaturally still before turning and walking towards the lake. Concerned about young children heading towards the water unsupervised, the couple followed down the path. But the path was empty. The children were gone. Panicked the children would get hurt, the H's went straight to let the Wyndhams know. Wyndham's West Bank hideaway was an adult-only getaway. No children on site. To be safe, Sarah called the sheriff's station. Deputies arrived looking for the wayward children, but found no one. Two weeks later, Sarah was in her kitchen making a wine spritzer when she noticed movement out her back window near the trees. Shadows moved, dark figures making their way from the woods towards her house. Figuring it was a deer with a fawn, Sarah went back to making her drink, dropping a handful of frozen raspberries into her glass. Turning to head towards the living room to finish her lifetime movie, she paused, hoping to catch a glimpse of the fawn, and her glass slipped from her grasp, shattering to the floor. Outside, lit bright enough to easily see, were two children. The girl was taller than the little boy, and they both looked at the ground unmoving. Sarah rushed outside, but the backyard was empty. Looking around, she noticed the night was quiet, no crickets or other insects buzzing about. The same night, on the opposite side of the property, in cabin 5, a young woman sat typing away on her laptop, using the hideaway as her personal writing retreat. In full writer's flow, she was startled back to reality by banging on the cabin's back door. Looking at the clock, it was after midnight. Who would be knocking this late and on the back door, she thought. Making her way to the back door, she called out, asking who was there. No response. Sliding the lace curtain aside, peering out onto the dimly lit deck, she saw a child. A little girl. Maybe 13? The child turned to look at the window. 
directly at the writer, who became sickened with an overwhelming feeling of dread. The girl said, Ma'am, please let me in. I need to phone my mother. When the woman didn't respond, the girl continued, Please, I can't enter unless you let me. I must phone my mother. The writer grabbed her cell to call the lodge for help, but it was dead, despite having been sitting on the charger. The girl began knocking on the door, asking over and over to be let in. The writer's not sure how long the knocking lasted, but as abruptly as it began, it stopped. On another occasion, a man unloading bags from his car one night turned closing his trunk to find two teenage boys standing a foot behind him. Their clothes looked outdated. One boy wore knicker-style short pants and tall socks. The taller of the two teens was very quiet, looking at the ground, while the other teen said, Excuse me, sir. Can you give us a lift in your automobile to the market? The man said their voices were monotone and something about the pair made him uneasy. Backing away, not daring to turn his back to the boys, he made his way to the driver's side door, dropping his bags as he hopped into the car, locking the door. He pressed start and jumped at the sound of knocking on his window. The shorter teen was there. Please, sir, drive me in your automobile to the market to get milk for my mother. The man refused, looking at the teen's face. His eyes were totally black. Assuming the teens were on drugs, the man sped away, calling the Wyndhams to let them know he wouldn't be staying in such a drug-ridden, unsafe area. The Wyndhams shipped the man his dropped luggage. The alien sightings happened more and more frequently. Rumors started circulating on social media about aliens taking over the hideaway. Reservations canceled, guests checked out early, even some demanding a refund while others fled in the night with little explanation. Night after night, things happened surrounding these drug-addicted alien children. Listening to these stories, it felt like my stomach would fall right out of my butt. What the heck had we gotten ourselves into? I don't think we're lucky enough to be dealing with aliens, Lark mumbled, nervously picking at her Lincoln Park after dark, deep plum nail polish. I hated to admit it, but she was right. At the Sleepless and Suburbia Society, we walk a line between logic and mystery. We debate how something unexplainable can happen without reason. Only in our world would you hope for an alien invasion over the more and more likely unsettling possibility of black-eyed kids. So what are black-eyed kids? Frankly, we have no idea. There is a whole lot that we don't know and very little that we do know. Here's what we're fairly confident about. Black-eyed kids come out to play at night, almost always approaching adults. They appear to be somewhere between 6 and 16 years old with very pale skin, always needing something like to use a phone or a ride, and overall they seem like any other sweet little kiddo, totally non-threatening, just needing some help. Until you realize the vibe about the kid is kind of off. And after a second or two or even a few minutes, you notice their eyes are vacant black balls of darkness. No white of the eye, no colorful iris, just deep darkness where the eyes should be. This is when the encounter can turn dangerous. If you ever come face to face with a black-eyed kid, the best advice I can give you is do not acknowledge their eyes or let them know that you think there's something off about them. This is important. It could save your life. Many accounts have the children approaching adults at their car or front door, 
Some have even seen these terrifying creatures watching them from the outside of a window or even lurking in the shadows of a bedroom watching them sleep. And without question, you should never let these beings in your car or your house. There's a lot that we don't know for sure, like what these creatures are, but there are several theories. Lark found a Black Eyed Kids origin theory in a book called Your Haunted Lives, The Black Eyed Kids by G. Michael Vassey. In this excerpt, Vassy explains how the black-eyed kids may be connected to the Iroquois. The Iroquois Indians believed in a dark power called the Atkan that could take over children and an evil one who would mate with human females to produce black-eyed, chalky-skinned children. These children were killed by the tribe soon after birth and burned to stop them from resurrecting. Children wandering alone in the woods could also be taken over by Atkan and would reemerge with black eyes, and pale skin acting nervously while repeating themselves over and over. Their goal was to destroy the tribe and infect all of the people with Atkan. You can grab a Kindle copy of Your Haunted Lives, The Black-Eyed Kids on Amazon if you want some light nighttime reading. Some believe that the devil or demons are housed in the bodies of black-eyed kids and that by letting them into your home or car, you are inviting hell into your life. And perhaps they are aliens, ghosts, or even blood-sucking vampires. Though there haven't actually been any accounts of them sucking blood, it's believed they can cause serious health issues for those who invite them in or acknowledge their eyes. There is a story of an elderly couple in Vermont who let two children into their home on a snowy winter night. After the husband mentioned their blackened eye sockets to his wife, the power in the house suddenly went out and the man's nose began bleeding heavily. The children left the home shortly after, meeting with two tall, string-bean skinny men at the end of the driveway. After the children left, the lights came back on. For days, the husband continued experiencing severe nosebleeds, eventually visiting his doctor, where he was diagnosed with an aggressive form of skin cancer. The only thing we knew for sure about them is we really had no clue what we were dealing with. Waltz gave us the name and number of the former property landscaper, Mary Beth Arnold. Claire gave Mary Beth a call who agreed to meet with us as long as our meeting space was nowhere near Wyndham's West Bank hideaway. Beth suggested a diner off the highway called Maggie's Mud Pies in an hour. Claire, Lark, and Prue headed towards the diner, leaving Lowe, Ford, and myself at the hideaway. Mary Beth worked at Wyndham's West Bank hideaway for over 15 years. She quit without notice 10 days ago. After working an 11-hour day mowing and edging the property, Mary Beth was beat. The next day would be a long one as well. Sarah offered cabin three for Mary Beth to crash in so she wouldn't have to drive home well exhausted. Since so many of the cabins were empty because of the social media alien drama, Mary Beth gladly accepted. After shower and heating up a frozen pizza, Mary Beth flopped on the couch to read a couple chapters of a vampire romance novel before heading to bed. A little before midnight, there were tandem knocks at the front and back doors of the cabin. Thinking maybe she'd dozed off and imagined the noise, Mary Beth went back to reading. The dual door knocking began again, steady, repeating, not stopping, until Mary Beth stood up. Then the cabin was quiet. At the front door, Mary Beth looked out the peephole, seeing two small children, no older than seven, One looked up towards the peephole, saying, Hello, miss. May we use your toilet? When Mary Beth didn't answer, it continued. 
I see you standing there on the other side of your looking glass. Let us in, won't you? Our father will be here soon. Pounding began on the back door, stopping just long enough for an even-toned voice to say, We saw you today, ma'am. We know you're here. Let us in. We're nothing but little children. Then, banging on both doors continued. Terrified, Mary Beth texts the following to Sarah. The aliens are trying to break down both doors. Call Sheriff Leary. Standing in the middle of the small cabin, figures appeared in the windows. Two at the front, one at the back window, and three at the window besides the fireplace, all tapping on the glass. She could easily see they were all too young to be teenagers. They were all sickly pale, and they all had black orbs where their eyes should be. She heard something say, Let us in, Mary Beth. Realizing that it came from in her mind, like they were calling to her from beneath her subconscious. The table lamp began flickering, the microwave buzzed on and off, a small radio on a bookshelf clicked on first to an oldie station, then scanned to nothing but static, volume blasting. The voice echoed in her head, We're just children, Mary Beth. Let us in. She dropped to her knees, clasping her hands over her ears, humming silent night to herself. Headlights cut through one of the windows, grabbing Mary Beth's attention. The cabin fell silent. Looking around, the three windows were empty. She walked out of the cabin, told Walt she quit, and drove home, never returning to the property. Mary Beth's hands continued to shake as she concluded her story, taking a trembling sip of her coffee. Prue slid an untouched slice of French silk pie across the table towards the anxious woman. Here. You need this more than I do, she said. Though none of them will admit it, I'm confident they considered leaving us at the hideaway to investigate on our own, debating how angry we'd be if they resurfaced the next day off the side of County Road L where we could have a ride home if we hiked to them. Haunted Happenings Prior to the black-eyed kid sightings, there's nothing to report. Unlike many other locations we've investigated, this location was inactive until it wasn't. Here's our investigation recap. This investigation would be different than any in the past. All investigators on site, all in different locations. We would each take our own cabin, which seemed like the worst, best idea I'd ever come up with. I'd be in cabin one, Lark in cabin three, Claire in cabin five, Ford in cabin seven, Prue in the Wyndham's home, and Lowe at the lodge. Lowe put together research packs, filling them with extra supplies for our overnight research. Our research packs are just backpacks, and these were the supplies included for this investigation. Digital voice recorder, digital camera, full-spectrum video camera, complete first aid kit, flashlight, Avon Skin So Soft Bug Guard, though I didn't encourage a lot of outside exploring with potential black-eyed kids strolling the grounds. Walkie-talkie, battery kit. If it took batteries, you'd find a replacement for it in the battery kit. Lifeguard whistle. Snack boxes provided by Sarah that thankfully included her Dunkaroo cookies and frosting. Holy water left over from the Francis House investigation. And finally, cell phone charger. As night fell, the Wyndhams locked the gate leading to the main area, wishing us luck. They were off to spend the evening with their daughter and grandchildren. 
Leaving low at the lodge, the rest of us headed down our individual stone-lined paths towards our cabin for the evening. I could have really enjoyed the stroll. Lightning bugs dancing through the trees, crickets singing, an owl hooting off in the distance. It was a glorious summer evening, but I couldn't shake this feeling that we were being watched. These are our experiences. Here are my experiences from Cabin 1. Arriving at Cabin 1, I decided to take advantage of the few remaining moments of pink and purple tinted twilight, exploring the area around the cabin, rolling video. Walking around the cabin towards the deck, something scuttered out from under the boards. I screamed, jumping back, camera flying. Devil creature! I shouted as the walkie-talkie on my hip came to life. B, you okay? Claire's voice crackled. What happened? I sucked in a few breaths before responding. False alarm, false alarm. It was the devil bunny. Only Brooke can be taken down by a rabbit, Lowe's voice mused. I glared at the spot in the woods where the brown rabbit had vanished. Listening to it rush deeper into the woods. Better a bunny than you know what. Suddenly feeling like a character from Harry Potter, afraid to mention he who shall not be named. An EVP session inside the cabin revealed nothing. After my rabbit attack, the night was uneventful, like finished two-thirds of Megan Miranda's new book kind of uneventful. I wish quiet would have been the theme of the evening. But eventually, the clock struck midnight. Lark was assigned cabin three. She settled into the window seat at the kitchen table, taking advantage of the quiet, distraction-free evening to work on a paper. She reported nothing out of the ordinary until around 11.55. The noise from nighttime nature was silent. She radioed, Uh, guys? Did the crickets and cicadas stop? They had. From cabin one all the way around the property to the center point of the lodge, the woods were still. Grabbing her camera and flashlight, Lark headed out the front door to explore. The wind was gone. No more lightning bugs flickering here and there. The night was void of noise. I'm outside heading to the deck, she updated us over the radio. Be careful, Claire said. On the back deck of the cabin facing the woods, a sound broke through the darkness. A stick snapping just beyond the wood's edge. Flipping on the flashlight in the direction of the woods, the beam illuminated the chalky pale face of a child wearing a gray t-shirt and jeans. In the time it took her brain to register what she was seeing and that it was real, the flashlight went out. Moving off the deck, she sprinted towards the front of the house, hearing a voice call out, Excuse me, miss? Inside, slamming the door shut, she radioed, They're here. We only heard there. Before her two-word walkie-talkie broadcast finished, the lights in her cabin cut out, and I was already running towards cabin three. Things were going downhill fast for Claire in cabin five. When Lark's walkie-talkie transmission cut, the entire team's walkies died. Claire quickly realized she had no service on her cell either. We were completely isolated. Grabbing her research pack, she headed towards the front door when fear gave way to an overwhelming wave of dread. Each step towards the door, slower than the one before, her stomach nodding, 
unease filling her entire body. Then a knock rattled the door. She froze. Then another knock. A tiny figure took shape at the window by the door with a tiny tap, tap, tap on the glass. We are just little children. May we come in and use your phonograph? Phonograph? What freaking year was it? From the back of a cabin, a voice, so soft, so monotone. Ma'am, won't you let us in? Our parents will be angry if you don't. A cabin seven, Ford sat in the dark. The microwave turned on and off on its own, even when there didn't seem to be electricity to the cabin. Despite the craziness unfolding around her, Cabin 7 didn't have any sightings of anything unusual. Prue stationed at the Wyndham's house. Walkie-talkie dead, lights flickering, three taps came from the wall of the cabin, then three more at the back door, followed by a steady knock at the front. Go away! Prue yelled to the phantom knocks. Don't be cross, a voice said from the front door. We've come in before. We can come in now if we'd like. You may not come in, young man, Prue replied. Their response? Laughter. The doorknob turned. Unlock the door, ma'am. Our father says it's okay. Knocking began again, then pounding, then a loud horn. Low at the lodge. About 12.10, the lights went out in the lodge, and Low knew it was time to go. She found me first, half jogging, half girl with asthma foot shuffling along the main path towards cabin three. My lungs thanked her. Using the footpath as a road, Low blared the horn, flipping on her lights as we approached Lark's cabin. She was out the door and in the car before Low took her hand off the horn. We repeated the same loud, bright process, picking up Claire and Ford. Outside of the Wyndham's cabin, Prue wouldn't come out. I got out of the SUV, racing to the front door. Prue, Prue, it's us. Come on, we gotta go. Silence from inside. Prue, it's me. Come on, we have to go. They're here. They're everywhere. Silence. Standing in front of the window, I begged. I swear, it's me. Would these freaks know about that time in Colorado when you... The front door opened, and we ran. Thanks to Lowe's mad off-roading skills, we maneuvered around the locked gate and headed towards County Road L. Sitting next to me, Ford said, Oh, shit, and grabbed my arm. I followed her glance out the back window. The lights were back on at the hideaway, lighting up several shadow figures standing on the road watching us leave. They were there. Low, I said. Faster. Wrap up. This is the first time in the history of the Sleepless in Suburbia Society that we fled a location. The first time we took on a case that we had zero idea how to handle. Are there really at least 10 different black-eyed kids roaming the woods around Wyndham's West Bank hideaway? Or is there a singular creature manifesting in numerous different forms? What caused such a concentration of aggressive negative entities? We looked for answers days following our escape from the hideaway, but came up empty. Though the Wyndhams were thankful for our help, we knew we weren't able to provide them the assistance they needed. 
We aren't even exactly sure what that assistance is. We do know they shouldn't be on the property, especially at night, until the infestation is resolved. We are unable to close case 115 at this time. It seems premature to do so when there are still sightings and the cleansings of the properties provided by our experts aren't working. There's more to this story, more with the property that we need to figure out in order to get to the bottom of this black-eyed kid's infestation. If you wanna check out some of our pictures from case files, listen to EVPs, and stay up to date with everything happening behind the scenes, you can stay connected with us on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Sleepless Suburbia Pod. We will be back next week with another case. Until then, thanks again for listening to Sleepless in Suburbia. If you enjoy our cases, please make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcast and subscribe so you get our new case each week. Until next week, lock your doors. Bye, guys. <laughs>